This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guests today are Mike Yusim, Professor of Management at Wharton and Director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management, and Brian Dumain, Founder and Editor-in-Chief of High Water Press and a contributor to Fortune magazine. We're going to speak with them today about their book, Go Long, Why Long-Term Thinking is Your Best Short-Term Strategy, which they have co-authored with Corn Ferry's Dennis Carey and McKinsey's Rodney Zemel. Uh, Mike and Brian, thank you so much for joining us today at Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Mike, uh, maybe I could, we could start with you. How did this book come about, and why did you decide it needed to be written? Well, uh, I and Brian and our other two authors have been involved in what we call the CEO Academy, which is an annual gathering in New York for new chief executives or or those who are about to take over the corner office. Uh, much of the teaching in the CEO Academy, it's a day and a half, comes from, in addition to Wharton faculty, to those who are serving as CEOs with some now tenure uh, behind their service or those who have stepped down. And one of the themes that Brian and I and our two co-authors kept hearing, we're now going into our fourth year with uh, our, my own and Brian's involvement, is the, the vital importance of getting beyond the month, getting beyond the quarter, and how tough that is. So we heard that behind closed doors, and uh, we decided to take what we learned behind these closed doors and then through direct conversations with um, close to a dozen chief executive officers, um, how they think about getting beyond the quarter, some of the barriers to that, and how they then surmount those barriers with the notion on our part, Brian and I and our co-authors want to tell a story here, that uh, you can get beyond the quarter. You can build for the next five years. You can build 10 years out if you're really good at the some of the themes that we develop in the book. Uh, and we became convinced that the best way for that argument to be made is by looking at people who have um, accepted the argument, who have actually acted uh, beyond the quarter to make a huge difference. Uh, Brian, would you like to add to that? Yes, sure. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons the CEOs at the Academy were so concerned uh, about managing for the long term is that the pressure for managing for the short term had become so great. I mean, we have obviously the activists on Wall Street who want returns now. They prefer, and, you know, there are exceptions, but uh, for the most part, they prefer. Uh, stock buybacks and dividend increases over long-term investments in R&D or in building a, a workforce for the 21st century. And any company that wants to thrive over the long term really has to make those long-term investments. But as a CEO, you felt that Wall Street was just breathing down your neck and uh, demanding more short-term quarterly results. So how how, how do you balance that that uh, dilemma. And the book is about how some of the most prominent CEOs in the world uh, managed, out, managed to figure out how to manage for the short term and the long term at the same time. That's very interesting. I, I was very struck, especially in the beginning of your book, on your focus on how short term the thinking of investors has become. Uh, and, and it reminded me of a story from my own family. Uh, if I could share that for, in a, for, for a moment with you. 
so when my grandfather, uh, 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 who worked in sort of the Indian uh, equivalent of Wall Street, uh, uh, when my mother, turned, who's in her 80s, stood now, when she turned 18, he decided to give her uh, some shares in a company. It happens to be one of the companies whose CEOs you mentioned in your book. And his advice to her back then in 1953 was, hold on to these shares and don't touch them until you are 60 years old. So so she's now in her 80s. She has held on to those shares for more than 60, almost 64 years. Uh, and while I don't know the size of, 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 the, of, of the value of her investment, I do know that whenever she has traveled to India for the last 20 years, she has just used the dividends of the, those, those shares to pay for her, her, for her travel. My question to you is, why is this kind of long-term thinking no longer part of the mandate of uh, investors these days? Well, what has brought about the shift? Well, McCool, you, you raise a very important point here. Part of it is that a small group of investors can control what a CEO does by buying up a small percentage of a company's stock and then putting pressure on the board to enact changes that might not necessarily be uh, in the best interests of of the company in the long term. We cite in the book a McKinsey study that says 75% of all equity is actually held by long-term investors, you know, the big institutional funds, university endowments. But the activists and other short-term investors garner all the headlines. They get all the attention. CEOs feel pressured uh, to to respond to them in some way because they are, after all, shareholders. So part of the trick is, is to find out who those long-term shareholders are in your corporation and go to them, gain their support, uh, express to them a very vivid and persuasive long-term vision uh, for your company. And then when the short-term investors come knocking, you'll have their support, you'll have their ground cover, and you'll be able to manage for the long-term. And Brian, that's really interesting because it's such a good reminder that capital markets are diverse and who's there, there are activists and there are long-term people who simply put money into index funds, almost the opposite of activism. And I reference that because I think in the longer term here, our longer term, as we think about this topic, that the long-term company executives, and we're also interested in in long-termism within the boardroom, actually now have a natural ally in some of the great investment management companies of the world, BlackRock, uh, Fidelity, Vanguard, State Street, in that, let's take Vanguard as a case in point, uh, they are typically these days, if you look at the Standard & Poor's 500 largest companies or the Fortune 500, uh, they are typically 2 3 even 4% of the stock uh, in their portfolios, and much of that, not all of of that of those holdings are indexed, which means if you're of a certain size, they're in you. They can't get out of you. And thus, I think <clears throat> the executives, and we've got uh, six or seven examples we offer up in some depth in the book, uh, I think they now have a, a natural ally out there to in some way work with to build for the long term, uh, serve the communities in which they're located, ultimately make a, a better world. And that's the argument we do make. 
I'd love to come back to the specific examples of companies in a minute, but just have a couple of other questions before that. So one thing that struck me is I wonder whether short-term thinking is something that is forced upon CEOs by external investors or is it self-imposed by the boards and by the, by, by the CEOs own management teams? What do you think? McCall, that's a, a great point, and we address that in the book. And what we found is that a lot of the pressure is self-imposed. The CEOs put it on themselves. Now, it may be that they feel that there's an activist breathing down their neck, or they might feel that their boards are focused on quarterly results, and therefore they must manage in accordance to that. But given the point we made earlier about 75% of the equity being long-term equity, the CEO should realize that, you know, if they cultivate these investors, then they don't need to put this kind of pressure on themselves. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up on that, Brian. And it's a, it's a created world. It's a created mindset. We inherit our past. We are a product of history. But as we know, we also make our future. And this book really is a call through uh, examples of people who have decided they're going to manage for the next five years out and ne- not, not the next uh, quarter. Uh, from these examples, and really in the examples, are instances in which people said, look, uh, <laughs> I know what's out there. I appreciate the the equity analysts uh, looking it over my shoulder, expecting me to get the results this quarter down to a few, <laughs> a few cents on a dollar uh, accurately. But I've decided, I've decided, that's the active verb here, I have decided that for the good of the company, uh, not necessarily for my career, but for the good of the company and the good of the community, we really got to go long. That's absolutely right, Mike. And there's data that shows that going long rewards shareholders in the long term. One of the McKinsey studies we cite in the book shows that companies that manage for the long term grow faster, uh, have a higher profitability, and create more jobs. So this isn't just about feel-good management. This is, has a real bottom-line effect. So we come before we come to the CEOs themselves and what they did, I wonder if you could each speak to what, what it is that sets these CEOs apart from other CEOs who are more vulnerable to short-term pressures in balancing both short-term and long-term objectives. Because I think you cite Jack Welch in, in, in your book saying that managing the two is really the, 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 the trick of being a great CEO, is being able to manage a short-term and a long-term. Let me briefly comment on that and then turn over to Brian. Uh, Jack Welch, and uh, former CEO of General Electric, and many, many executives who come to our campus or our CEO academy, they always say, that as a chief executive responsible for a company, or you could be a hospital, doesn't even necessarily have to be a company, you've got to get your day's work done well. You've got to get through the quarter extremely well as well. Uh, and, and not or, you've also got to look ahead. You've got to be strategic. You've got to understand where the market's going. And that says you've really got to get both. And Brian, just over to you on this one. The people that we spend time with I think to a person, we're extremely mindful of that dictum. No fooling around. This quarter's got to be good. But equally, no will for ignorance about the longer term. 
They've got to have in place a scheme that will allow them to sell products and reach consumers in all kinds of ways five years out, knowing full well that the future is going to be different from what it is now. And I think the other quality that, that sets them apart, Mike, is that they, they really have an ability to sell their long-term vision. They have a yeah. very persuasive way of expressing what their long-term vision is. They stick to it. They communicate that with everyone in their organization. They communicate that with their investors so that people feel okay if you miss a quarter or two quarters or three quarters, if you know that the business is moving in the right direction over the long term. I think that was key. It's the ability to communicate what that long-term vision is. And if you have to take a hit in the short term for your long-term vision, every one of your constituencies understands why that's happening. Such a good point, because it really is two sides of almost the same coin here. Uh, You're probably not going to be long for your high office if you don't have a strategy, almost by definition. But equally, you're probably not going to be there all that long either if you can't advocate the strategy with investors, with equity analysts, with your own employees, and certainly customers. And I would give them almost equal footing. You need to know where you're going. And then you have to be extremely persuasive in how you're going to get there so people are willing to march in the same direction. With that, why don't we dive into the the examples of the CEOs themselves, maybe starting with Alan Mulally at at Ford. Uh, You say in the book that he was able to bring about a $48 billion turnaround at at Ford. Now, how did he balance the short and long term in in order to do that? Brian? Alan Mulally is a great example of long-term investing and forming everything you do in the short term. When Alan joined Ford right in the midst of the financial crisis as CEO, he had come from Boeing, he found that the company was on track to lose $17 billion that year. And to his surprise, he realized that a lot of the top executives in the firm didn't even realize that. So Alan looked at the situation, realized it was a crisis. Now, the normal thing to do in that situation for a CEO would be just to batten down the hatches, cut costs, hope for the best, hope that you'd ride out this great storm. What Alan did was he set out a long-term strategy first, and he called it profitable growth for all. His vision is that Ford would be a corporation where everyone would prosper over the long term. Employees would prosper, suppliers would prosper, customers would prosper, and investors would prosper. And Alan set this out in a very clear way, and he emphasized it over and over again with his management team. And what he realized was that, and what his his team realized, is is that it, it informs your short-term decision-making. So, for example, Alan said Ford should be making the best cars in its class. They should have high quality. They should be environmentally sound. Now, if you're about to lose $17 billion in a year, how much are you going to think about that? Well, Alan said you've got to think about that a lot. So all the decisions they had to make for cutting costs or closing down factories were all designed to, in the long run, create those great products that Alan wanted for the company. So 
again, there's the balance between the long and the short. It wasn't just blind cutting. It was, this is where we need to get. I know you don't want to think about it because we're about to lose $17 billion and maybe your jobs, but we've got to think about the long term. And if we have a clear vision of that long term, then everything falls into place for the short term. And Brian, I'm going to just add one note to that. Uh, This is one of our A cases, just a wonderful illustration of many of the ideas that we set forward in the book. And in this case, if you think about careers of people reporting to the chief executive, Alan Mulally at Ford Motor Company, uh, in the long term, they're gone. In the short term, if they bring significant problems to the fore, uh, they may be punished for that. No end of your bonus, for example, or maybe even worse. And he recognized just a, a condition, a, a feature of the human condition, which is that uh, people who work for him, this is recognizing reality, then doing something about it, uh, had their own incentive, so to speak, to get through the quarter and the year and not worry about five or ten years out. Electric vehicles, self-driving vehicles, uh, they're, they're out there, but it's just not um, going to keep my uh, bonus coming in this year. That said, what Brian just referenced is a recognition of that reality and then Alan, as documented in the book, found ways of getting people indeed to bring to the fore the underlying, obviously short-term issues, but also some of the long-term fundamentals that they had to come to terms with. You also write about the CVS Health CEO, um, Larry Merlo, and his decision uh, to stop selling cigarettes uh, at the risk of taking a short-term hit to earnings. Uh, how, How does he fit in with your framework? Uh, Mike? Yeah, I'll start on that, and then Brian will jump in as well. For me, this is, I think, the best illustration of what the book stands for, or what the book advocates. Larry Merlot, chief executive of CVS uh, in a very, very competitive industry, uh, reached the conclusion that if the company was going to be a provider of health care, health products, there was just something fundamentally wrong with having tobacco right behind the cash register there for patrons to look at as they are as they're checking out. He consulted extensively within the company, talked with his board at great length. This is back to Brian's notion of kind of then advocating, in this case, a new strategy to take tobacco out of the stores nationwide. And then he also talked with senior management. This is not something you can impose by fiat. Nothing can you impose in the corporate world by fiat, as we well know. Uh, He had to argue the case with senior people, take their temperature on it. And what he quickly found is that the issues of tobacco are so profoundly antithetical to good health that there was agreement from the board quickly provided and from senior managers who were going to take themselves a, a loss. And, in fact, the company did take a $2 billion hit short term. Huge decision. But it more than got that back as uh, the company continued to prosper for other reasons without tobacco in the stores. And I think fundamentally it led to the key decision of the last uh, 12 months to now begin to merge with Aetna. Yeah, that's right, Mike. And one characteristic that this story brings to the fore is that CEOs who want to manage for the long term have to have courage. This is a hard decision. I mean, the day that Larry Merlo announced that he was going to stop selling tobacco to CVS stores, the stock dropped, uh, I think it was 7%. And then his 
competitors like Walgreen didn't follow. He was out there all alone. They kept selling cigarettes. But he knew in his heart that if he was going to become a health care company as well as a retailer, he had to have credibility not only with his employees and his executive team, but with all these companies that CBS wanted to do partnerships with, whether it's health insurance companies or hospitals. And what happened was that CBS was able to create a number of new partnerships after the cigarette decision. A lot of health care companies saw what Larry did and said, were impressed by it and said, hey, you know, you're really serious about becoming a health care company. And Larry was able to cement these very lucrative deals for CVS. So there was a, uh, a need for courage, and it paid off in the long run. I think that's just such a great example. So thank you both for, you know, mentioning that. Well, another CEO whose example I found very fascinating was Unilever's Paul Polman, who fought off a private equity investor uh, to uphold the long-term interests of the company. What, what can other CEOs learn from him? Well, it's really interesting. In the case of uh, the CEO of Unilever that sells household products all over the world, it's up against Procter & Campbell in just about every category, was the underlying notion that in the short term, I'll point the finger myself, I do like to buy a junk food now and then, I will admit, on, <laughs> uh, on the air here. Um, but longer term, I know it's unequivocally not good for my family, not probably good for me for sure uh, either. And uh, Paul Pullman, the CEO, uh, appreciated that in the short term, uh, he's going to lose some sales. And by the way, PepsiCo has gone through the same process here as is with its slogan, Profits with Purpose. To begin, you have to do this very carefully to pull off the shelves those products which maybe are not ideal for people's health or their weight or anything else longer run taking the short-term consequences, but recognizing, and this is what Strategy 101 is all about, in four or five years, people are going to be thanking you for that, and markets are moving in that direction anyway. Short-term took a hit in terms of stock price, but longer-term, Unilever, uh, PepsiCo, and other companies uh, have begun to move in this direction, and it also is just such a, a revealing case, which is why we offer up the accounts in the book that others can look at and think, gee, I kind of understand what he was doing, why he was doing it, and I relate to it. Yeah, well, one of the things that Unilever's Paul Pullman realized was that setting a a long-term strategy can be a very powerful tool in motivating your employees and even your customers. So Pullman had this vision that Unilever should not just be a packaged good company. I mean, they are obviously one of the largest in the world. But he wanted the company to be more than that. He wanted the strategy to be larger than selling ice cream or, or selling potato chips or whatever, Mike's favorite junk food. Uh, what he saw was that this millennial generation coming up uh, believes that Business should be more than just the bottom line. Yes, the bottom line is important, but it has to have purpose. It has to have meaning. So, for example, Pullman went back to the roots of Unilever, and he found that uh, uh, the founder of the company 
really wanted to make the world a better place. It was during Victorian England, and Sir Lever uh, felt that health was a huge problem in London in those days, and so he came out with Life Boy soap, and he was trying to raise the hygiene of, of, of the British people, and he treated his employees well, and he, for example, when some of his employees went off to World War One. He paid their salary, even though they were uh, away from the factories. And he, when he when he got elected to Parliament, he actually took his wife's name in support of uh, women's rights. So he was kind of a remarkable character. And Pullman reached back into this history, and he said, let's make Unilever a lot more than just selling packaged goods. Let's make it a company that does two things. One, it wants to alleviate world poverty, and he says that he wants to uh, raise a billion people in the world out of poverty, helping them through healthier food and hygiene, et cetera, et cetera, and he wants to be an environmental steward. He wants Unilever to eventually become a zero-carbon company. They aren't there yet, of course, but he's moving in that direction. So Pullman's argument is that this it costs more money in the short term, but in the long term, money long term, it really pays off. And Unilever has outperformed its peers in the stock market over the last decade or so. Now, Pullman found himself in this position back in January, where he got attacked by a private equity group, wanted a hostile takeover, a 20% premium over his stock. But this private equity group from Brazil, 3G. You know, they saw an opportunity to create a, a bigger, more efficient uh, company. But Pullman saw a philosophy that was short-term and the exact opposite of his long-term uh, strategy. So he fought back, and he got his investors on his side, and he won the public opinion battle in the press, and 3G withdrew its offer. And now Pullman continues to manage Unilever for the long run. You know, Brian, to come back on a phrase we used earlier, it took a lot of courage, a lot of personal courage, and it took persuasive communication. And that speaks to the, the kind of the formula we have uh, implicitly in our account, which is th- we've been referring to actions of individuals who are courageous, who can look far ahead, who can offer a persuasive story, and Paul Pullman illustrates all of that. And maybe more broadly, it gets to this point, uh, McCool, and that is we're advocating here that companies think beyond the quarter, go long, but also to remember that companies now, as large as they have become, as powerful as they are as actors in the world we inhabit, they also have an opportunity, and this is part of the long-term possibility, uh, to improve the state of our of our health, to um, help in other ways. Uh, one of the biggest donors now to disasters that often follow, for example, hurricanes now have become private companies as they step in. Uh, short-term, it costs them. Long-term, it's for the good of the community, the society. And that's an underlying argument here. Long-term has a company implication, but also a society-wide outcome. Now, in the interest of time, I know there are other three three more CEOs that, that uh, I would have loved to speak in greater length about, but maybe we could cover all three of them in, in the interest of time. You write about Verizon's Ivan Seidenberg, as well as 3M's CEO, Sir George Buckley, 
and uh, Maggie Wilderotter, the director of HP Enterprise and Costco. Uh, what are some of the main lessons that our listeners can hear from them, uh, can learn from them about balancing short and long term? Brian? Well, I'll start with Ivan Seidenberg at Verizon. When he took over as CEO about 15 years ago of Verizon, the telecom sector was in chaos. Uh, it was a tough business, too many companies, there was consolidation, there were bankruptcies, et cetera, et cetera. Wall Street wanted Ivan to basically buy other telecom companies and then uh, merge them, cut costs, pay back the savings and dividends or stock buybacks, and everybody would be happy. Ivan had a very different vision. He had a long-term vision for growth. He wanted to build the best fiber optics network in the country. He wanted to build the best wireless network in the company. So at a time when Wall Street wanted him to cut costs, save money, and give it back to investors, he decided to invest $150 billion in building out these new businesses. And he got a lot of pushback. But one of his secrets was he figured out which investors to cultivate. He found his most supportive long-term investors. And again, as we mentioned earlier, he really laid out this vision of having the best wireless and the best fiber optics network. And that worked for him. He got the support. He built those networks. And Verizon now is uh, one of the largest in the United States and one of the most successful telecom companies. Mike, do you want to take a crack at Sir George Buckley at uh, 3M? Well, uh, in the interest of uh, bringing this to us pretty swift close, let me just reference uh, George Buckley, who became chief executive at 3M uh, at a time when companies were trying to tighten. And as we know, the internal education training function and research and development, those are by definition long-term investments. In some respects, the easiest to cut if you're a, a short-term uh, focused individual because the rewards are not coming for five, maybe 10, or even 15 years. Uh, Sir George um, became, was knighted by the Queen, uh, doubled down on research and development. It is 3M, so there's a history there of its products being uh, incredibly innovative and continually innovative. And with that as the, the, the kernel of his thinking, he said, oh, we've got to tighten. He took money or took cash out of other areas and actually moved the savings as he did have to tighten uh, the the cash that he pulled out of other functions into the research and function, research and development function. And again, almost a, just a classic example of somebody who's going to, in the short term, realize this is not going to drop to the bottom line at all for a couple of years. But with a lot of courage, he went for that. Let me maybe end with a reference to Maggie Wilderotter. Uh, because to us, she so exemplifies what directors, so not executives, but what directors can bring to the boardroom. She served on the board of um, HPE, uh, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, uh, in an extremely turbulent industry, technology, long-term, not clear where we're going. And she worked actively with uh, CEO Meg Whitman there in ways that we document in the book to help uh, the CEO and the company more broadly uh, appreciate where technologies were going to be uh, this year, three years out, and five years out, while fully also helping the top management team here 
<laughs> as a activist investor came into the into the stock, what are some of the changes we need to make to ensure we do have a long run when we're under siege short term? Brian. Yeah, I just wanted to add on the Maggie story uh, uh, interesting anecdote. One of the things she and the board of HPE did with Meg Whitman's uh, support was they actually composed a letter to Meg as if it had been written by an activist. And they said, you know, if we were an activist, how would we think about this company? And they went through X, Y, and Z. But the difference there was that then management retains control. You don't have someone on the outside dictating terms, but if you know the direction you should go in, you can do it in your own way, in a way that would foster long-term growth and prosperity. So it was a very clever exercise that ended up uh, doing a lot of good for HPE. Just to wrap up, I have one last very short question for each of you, and that is, as you pointed out right in the beginning, there are plenty of pressures, both external and external, self-imposed, that CEOs and leaders face in to, that push them towards short-term thinking. What advice would you offer CEOs who want to up the long, the long game? Well, I would say just be aware of the trends going on in the world. Uh, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, which manages $6 trillion in assets, uh, says that it would be key for CEOs to realize some of the changes going on in society. For example, this shift towards automation and artificial intelligence. A McKinsey study we cite in the book says that could displace 30% of American workers. So CEOs who want to survive in the long run, who want their companies to survive in the long run, have to be aware of what's going on in society and try to steer their companies to address some of these issues. And if they do that, they'll get the support of their investors, they'll get the support of their customers, and they'll get the support of their employees. And I think I would add on to that and then close with this. As we think about large companies. We, we tended to focus on large companies, lots of analog for medium and small enterprise here as well. We sometimes think they're large. They've got 100,000 employees. In the case of Walmart, 2.4 million. Can one person, even a CEO, really make a difference? And we have concluded by just observing the world we're in that chief executives can make a difference for the better when they're on the side of the angels and the opposite uh, if they're not. And in this book, we wanted to document inductively, just looking at the people who were able discretionarily to take a company that was disciplined for the short run by the equity market. Uh, and in the space that the, that the corner office does allow, you can go this direction or that direction with courage of conviction, with a strategy for three to five years out, I think Jeff Bezos, who was thinking 20 years out, and then with a ability to persuasively communicate that strategy story, you can do it. It's hard. It's uphill. It's been done. Mike, Brian, thank you so much for, for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton today. It's great speaking with you. Thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you, Michael. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 